Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. From Bill and Melinda Gates to Ben Affleck and J-Lo, we can't get enough of celebrity weddings, almost weddings, and divorces. But the real-life consequences of those weddings, almost weddings, and divorces aren't always the stuff of Hollywood film reels. To talk about marriages, taxes, and estates, I've asked Mila Garber to the program. Mila is a tax principal at Anchin. She has extensive experience handling all aspects of taxation and planning for high net worth families, their trusts, and estates. And as tax leader of the private client and leader of Anchin's trust and estate services and matrimonial advisory groups, Mila assists women in matrimonial issues working with divorcees and widows, helping them navigate through their new financial lives. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. So let's kind of just right out of the gate. um, A lot of people are talking about marriage and divorce right now because of Bill and Melinda Gates making big news, right? But not all of the uh, relationships end in such a high profile way. So I wanted to talk about what are the kinds of issues that you see that couples face coming out of a marriage? And then we'll circle back around to, you know, what should people think about on the planning side? But what kinds of issues do you see? You know, it's not always how do you break up a billion-dollar company. What kinds of issues do you see when couples are going through a divorce? Putting emotional issue aside and talking only about financial issues, biggest issue comes, what is the appropriate way to split the assets among the parties? What is equitable and what is the best? way of setting up funds to handle children's education and well-being. Right. I think that's interesting that you bring up children right from the start, because I think sometimes when we see these relationships in the news, it's all about dollars. But realistically, I think most people, when they are going through a divorce, one of the things that they were most concerned about is how do I continue to provide for my family? That's so true. The priorities, non-tax priority is maintaining everybody's lifestyle, ability mm-hmm. to continue after divorce, and providing proper help for children, whether financial, emotional, and how to split the time between the two ex-spouses. And there are, I'm going to tell you that what I have seen the biggest fights and more emotionally draining fight is the discussions on how children and when and where they're going to spend their holiday, birthday, etc. Right. No, I can imagine that as a mom. And I, you know, you always want to have your kids around. So I can imagine that's really difficult. When you were talking earlier about some of the splitting the equitable pieces. So I don't do any matrimonial law um, myself, but I do handle tax planning. And one of the things that I think sometimes doesn't happen contemporaneously, but probably should, is talking with a tax attorney about what that split means, because there are tax consequences to some of the asset distributions. 
do you have, and keeping in mind, of course, you know, and our audience knows that this is just a quick primer. This isn't meant to be exhaustive, but do you have some practical planning tips about things to think about when you're considering asset distribution, especially on the tax side, for example, selling a home or divvying up retirement accounts? Definitely. So just taking an example, $5 million cash is not the same as receiving $5 million value of the house because the cash can be invested and generate income in future years. What happened with the house, it does not bring any current income. More so, it's required expenses. So one of the hardest decisions I've seen women that they face is they want to retain the house. They want to stay in the same neighborhood so the kids can go to the same school. The problem is sometimes will they get, besides the house, will they receive enough other assets to support the maintenance of this house and to continue having the same level of lifestyle and have enough money to have vacation and enjoy life going forward. So as I mentioned before, the $5 million cash is not the same as the $5 million house. In addition, if somebody receiving portfolios that have a lot of appreciated assets, mm-hmm. there are also tax consequences of liquidating this portfolio when the funds are needed to pay for expenses. So recommending get involved in the tax planning pre-settlement of the asset split, get the tax advisors involved also. Mostly matrimonial attorney address the legal issues Mm -hmm. and everybody needs the right team to address all the issues that are arising during the divorce, not just the legal. I love that you said team because that's something that I always advocate. One person can't do everything no matter how fantastic they are. So I always recommend having a team of people to help. And that also, I would assume in these discussions, you would want a financial advisor to be involved because they can actually look at a portfolio and say, you know, these are highly appreciated, these are not. And that does make a difference. So true. The traditional teams are attorney, divorce attorney, the tax advisors and financial advisors. Basically, this is the financial advisors or investment advisors that will be handling assets, portfolios, ongoing forward methods. And they are the ones that can run the projection and make certain assumptions to see how much portfolio will generate income in the future years. And will that portfolio be enough to maintain the same lifestyle? Right. And it's interesting to me because, you know, once you get through all of this, right? So once you sort all of this and you get your settlement and and you're moving forward, one of the things that I think people don't always think about enough is what comes next. And oftentimes, depending obviously on ages and circumstances, there may be a remarriage. And so when that happens, it brings another host of complications, right? Because now you may have blended families. So I was wondering if we could talk about that for a little bit. Like, what are some of the 
practical and real consequences of remarriage after a divorce, especially when children are involved? In remarriage, now somebody creates a new family. And most of the time, the patriarch will make a decision, financial decision while they're alive, and they can smooth out all the issues that may arise while they're around. Mm-hmm. The real issues that I've seen where many family relationships fall apart is when the patriarch dies. Right. Even in the best case scenario where children from prior marriages have good relationship with the new spouse, after the patriarch dies, the tax issues that come up, the financial issue that come up can cause a lot of aggravations and a lot of additional fees on solving the issue that as they come up. For example, in typical scenario what I've seen, most of the will provide for setting up what we call marital trust. What mm-hmm. does it mean? The trust, all the funds going into the trust for the benefit of the current spouse. The spouse is receiving income from the trust, which is interest, dividend, royalty, can sometimes get the principal out of the trust. But the goal is for the remainder of the trust in the future years when the new spouse passes away, the remainder of the trust will go to the children from prior marriages. Right. And here is where we have the conflict. We have one part of money and two different parties that have different interests in the same part. The surviving spouse, it would be interested to generate as much income as possible from that trust, where the children that will inherit the money eventually are more interested in creating the portfolio that would appreciate in the future beneficial current income. And that's, I think it's even more complicated when those children have their own children, because then they're also thinking about how are we paying for college? How are we paying all of our expenses coming up if dad's wife is now using the money that we were counting on getting? That's right. Somebody will be watching over somebody else's spending and the allocation of assets in the trust. And so how do you recommend that folks work these things out? Because I've seen this happen in my own practice where there is this tension. And and as you pointed out in the beginning, it happens even when everybody gets along. Because, you know, you don't have to dislike your stepmother to dislike the idea that you're not going to get the money that you thought you might get. So how do you work those things out? So there are various tools that's available. Depending on ages of the beneficiary, children and spouse, and quite often we know with second marriages, the second spouse may be much younger and could be closer to the same age as the children from prior marriages. So one of the ways is, it's the simplest way, but it would trigger the estate taxes, is take estate and split in whatever proportion the grantor would like to make and separate everybody's shares so the wife and the children can invest their trust 
the way they want it, the way it would benefit them and the way it would support their own lifestyle. Right. Rather than having a big pot of money that everybody's kind of fighting over, go ahead and split it up at the beginning then. Right. But what's happening is if the estate is large enough to generate estate taxes, we have this inherited desire to defer and eliminate estate taxes. And therefore, most of the time, the client would set up marital trust that everybody is a beneficiary of at a different time. So the way to solve the conflict is to set up a trust as a unit trust. And many states currently allow this trust to be unit trust. And basically what the plan is then that the wife will receive a specific amount of money that would be based on market value of the asset, let's say at the end of the year, and the wife would receive a percentage of the assets in the trust, redetermined annually. And what that accomplishes is that everybody, the current wife and future beneficiary, usually kids, are interested in growing the trust as much as possible. This way, both type of beneficiaries win. Right. When you set those kinds of trusts up, do you recommend having like an independent trustee? Excellent point. People don't spend enough time thinking who should be the trustees. Initial reaction I've seen from the client saying, okay, you know what? I'd like to my wife and one of my children to be named as a trustee. And they can both decide how they want the trust to be administered and what kind of assets allocation they will have. This is quite often create a disaster. And therefore, I totally always recommend to name an independent trustee. The trustee could then address the needs of the wife and the children and make impartial decisions regarding the distribution and the investment. I was going to say, I agree completely. It's always interesting to me when people say that they want the wife and the child to make the decisions together because it feels like, I think, a good idea when they're saying it because they think this way everybody's involved. But you're also putting the two people who are going to already be conflicted into the position that they now have to work out the conflict, knowing that that's going to happen. So I agree. I think independent trustees are really valuable. What do you do when clients insist, though, on not having that? Do you have pushback? Do you have clients that say, no, I still want it to be my wife and child? It's interesting that sometimes we cannot see future conflict. And when everybody's getting along, we cannot predict what will happen in the future. I can only guide my clients and give them example from my experience where I've seen Millions of dollars spent on litigations Mm -hmm. and sometimes giving these examples convince a client that it is better to name an independent trustee. There is a way to have the children and the wife perhaps to be somewhat involved in administration of the trust, but not to make all the decisions. Right. I had a situation where a client 
she was the surviving spouse and she lived in the family home, continued to live in the family home. And they, any maintenance had to be voted on by the children. And it was interesting to me because they didn't want their money to be spent on improving what they considered to be her living arrangements. And she was very frustrated because if she needed a significant roof repair, let's say after Mm -hmm. a storm, she would have to ask permission from children who were not hers. I mean, they had a good relationship, you know, until this happened, but it was interesting to watch because it actually created conflict where there didn't need to be conflict before. And so she would have to submit, you know, bids. Here are the three roofing proposals and they would review them and decide if it was appropriate or not. And you're asking children to make, even they were adult children, but you're asking children to make decisions about their own financial future based on bids and information about, they wanted to honor, I think, their father's memory, but they still had this conflict between, well, maybe this roofer is too expensive. Maybe we should find another one. And I I actually found that having folks who were not independent make those decisions created conflict. Yeah, these so-called life estate arrangements usually are not a a great setup. And if there is a way to give a detailed instruction to the future trustee of the trust, how the funds should be spent, what is allowable for maintenance, what is proper repair, what are the improvements amounts, to diminish the future conflict. I think that's a great point. Can we talk about maintenance for a bit? Because one of the things that I regularly see in terms of conflict, not just in my own practice, but what we'll see when we read, you, you mentioned litigation, you know, some of this litigation makes becomes public and you see it. It's this idea of maintenance. You know, what is the standard that someone should be entitled to when you're doing a plan Do you have those conversations ahead of time? I know that not all estate attorneys do, and I understand why, because sometimes it's really hard, you know, to predict the future. But do you have conversations about what kinds of things would be included in maintenance? You know, I I understand there are some some standards already that we we look to in common law, but just in terms of how do you decide ahead of time what's an appropriate amount of money to have someone retain a lifestyle? One of the ways of handling this issue is to set up a separate trust that would fund the maintenance expenses and Mm -hmm. set up a guideline. Obviously, nobody can predict everything that could happen in the future. For example, you know, we never thought that Sandy could destroy so much, so many houses in our area, right? right? And Mm -hmm. there would be such a tremendous amount of funds needed to rebuild these houses, there is a way to figure out and estimate the future expenses, definitely taking into consideration that cost of living increases and Mm -hmm. incorporate in the budgeting. And the best way to set up a separate fund and not to make the children the residual beneficiary of that fund. Right. Having enough funds as a date of death to set up all these different parts helps to diminish the future conflicts. It's actually really interesting because you would think that 
the more money that's available, the less conflict there might be. But that's not always the case, right? Because I think sometimes the biggest fights we see are in situations where there is a lot of money to go around. Like, you know, just thinking about high profile cases, there's, you know, Anna Nicole Smith, like those kinds of, of cases where there are family members who say you don't need this much money to live, but it's still a lot of money. It's an interesting concept what people need in order to have a comfortable lifestyle. And everybody has a different need and we are used to a different lifestyle. The main suggestion I have, as much as possible, separate the state in various parts and not to have beneficiaries that are not blood relatives or sometimes even, you know, blood relative fight. And we've seen it um, from prior litigation, the children and the parents could be in litigation for years. Mm -hmm. I also have seen a lot of litigation between the siblings. Yes. (laughs) Because the documents are not clear sometimes. And do you recommend that people review their estate planning documents at a certain time, like annually or every other year? Because one of the things I think that does happen is especially with situations where there might be a blended family is that things can change really quickly. Like there could be a, somebody could graduate from college or somebody could get married or somebody might want to start a business. Things could happen really quickly. Do you have, or do you recommend that people set up regular meetings to discuss what comes next? It's always great to review the estate plan periodically even if there is no major events in the family because the tax law constantly change. Mm -hmm. Where there are changes in the family situation, that has become more needed, but it's sometimes very hard to have people focus on a lot of different documents. What I've noticed, we all know that going through divorce is emotionally draining. And every time I talk to the client and I say, you know, you're going through the divorce, you'll be divorced soon. We need to address your wills and trust. And this is the last thing that clients want to do, right? After they spend (laughs) so much time on divorce settlement. But it's important because things sometimes change so fast. Somebody can get sick. Somebody can tragically die really unexpectedly. And then the documents are not updated timely and create totally different distribution of assets than decedents' wishes. Right. And you mentioned earlier tax consequences, tax changes. With the new administration, one of the very first things that we heard where a lot of people were encouraging clients to plan in advance. Is this something that you're encouraging or are you doing more of a wait and see approach? Because this is, I know it's very, uh, I think everybody has a different way of, you know, addressing this, but I'm not talking about the tax changes that have been written into law, but the proposals. Are you suggesting that people take another look, you know, maybe do a little gifting during lifetime or are you taking more of a wait and see approach? Oh, absolutely. People should be watching what proposed currently. There is tremendous amount of bills introduced that make such a huge change to the way the assets will be taxed when somebody passes away. We need to take it into consideration since 
Even some of the bills propose retroactive changes. I doubt that the retroactive changes will be made, but Mm -hmm. certainly all the advisors should be aware of all the proposal when they discuss current estate planning with the clients. One of the biggest items I think on one of the proposed bills is elimination of step-up basis. Yes. That will have huge impact on all the estate plans that are currently we're working on. Yes. There's been a lot of chatter, especially in the, the tax professional world, about what that means for estate planning going forward. So it'll be really interesting to see what comes out of those proposals. We have done some analysis taking into consideration current proposal. And if the documents are stayed the way they are, there is a possibility that some estate will pay about 75% of uh, taxes based on the market value of the estate. That's a combination of estate taxes and income tax on the appreciated assets. This is huge. Yeah, sure. Are you doing anything differently in contemplation of that? For example, I actually spoke with a a few estate planners on the program recently, and one of the things that they were advocating is more lifetime giving. I would think that would be, from a tax perspective, that makes a lot of sense. From an estate's perspective with blended families, that could be, I think, a little controversial. How are you handling it, or are you just, again, kind of waiting to see what happens? We're taking note that of all the bills, but we are not acting until they are signed into the law. Right. We have to wait and see, but not doing anything that could potentially trigger more taxes soon. Sure. Are you actually noticing any increases in as we're coming out of COVID in folks that are either anxious to get estate plans or they're rethinking their estate planning because of the pandemic? The pandemic depress certain type of assets severely. For example, New York City commercial real estate values have been cut in half. Many real estate families have been and are very proactive on gifting the property to the next generation through various type of trusts, utilizing the depressed real estate market, and appropriate discounts. There have been tremendous amount of gifting done during 2020, right after the pandemic. Right. And it makes sense. I mean, exactly what you said. Like if you're looking at assets which are lower in value, this is a good time to offload those a little bit, especially if you could combine them with some discounts. Right. And I think the people are resilient, the nations are resilient, the New York City will come back one day and looking back, somebody will say, whoa, my father or my grandfather did such a great tax planning for me. Nice. So kind of looking forward, I mean, we're already halfway through 2021. Other than the changes, potential changes in the tax code, Are there any other trends or other things that you're looking at that you think that tax people should be aware of when it comes to estate planning? Like, um, again, kind of you mentioned in a post-COVID world, we're looking at asset valuation. Is there anything else kind of like that that you're noticing or that people are are asking about? I know one thing that I hear a lot of questions about now are 
donor advised funds. Like there's always something happening and and people want to know like what comes next. Are you seeing any extra activity or extra interest in any particular areas? I have not seen many changes regarding charitable donations. What I do see different type of trust set up now Mm -hmm. that, for example, like grant, right? It's a grant to retain annuity trust. There is mm-hmm. a one of the bills or a couple of the bills introduced whereby um, not allowing a short-term grant and installing a minimum of 10 years grant to be set up. So many clients setting up grant now while still allowed to have two years grant mm-hmm. and set up multiple grant for different type of assets. So if one of the assets depreciate, it will not pay depreciation of other assets. Right. That makes sense. There is a lot of discussion about income tax planning in light of expectancy that the income tax rate will go up. And the questions always come up. One of the proposals is to eliminate preferential capital gain rate and the gains to be taxed at ordinary tax rate. So the question come up, should I sell my portfolio mm-hmm. because the rates will be higher? And my answer is always, don't let the tax decide your financial decision. It right. has to be economically solid. If somebody wants to sell an asset anyway, I would recommend doing it before the rates go up. But just to turn over the portfolio, just because the rates will be higher in the future, I definitely would not recommend that. Yeah, we always say, don't let the tax tail wag the dog. Exactly. Same thing, right? <laughs> so, well, thank you so much. I think this has been really helpful. If people wanted to find you and you wanted to be found either on social media or your website up for the firm, where would you send them? So the easiest way to locate me, it's at Ancient website, ancient.com. I am on a LinkedIn and one of the, another easy way just to put my name to, into Google's because the spelling of my first name is unusual. Google picks me up right away. There is one. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Well, I will be sure to put those links too in the show notes so that folks can just click on them from the website. So thank you again for your time today. This has been really helpful. My pleasure. Thank you. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.